Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're going to get into John 9. You know, uh, imagining what it's like to be blind is an opportunity that we all have because none of us can see in the dark. And uh, so we also have the option of simply closing our eyes. So why don't you do that uh, right now? Just, if you would, close, close your eyes. John chapter 9 is the story of a man who had never, ever been able to see. And he's about to receive his sight. But John chapter 9 is also the story of others who would choose to remain in the darkness. So, Father in heaven, we pray that you would illuminate, that you would enlighten our understanding this morning and help us to see what you would have for us from this passage of Scripture. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, open your eyes. Thank you, Lord. Uh, now, read with me, if you will, John chapter 9, starting at verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, we're jumping in, obviously. Uh, he there is Jesus. He's traveling with his disciples, of course. And we're jumping in, and it has that kind of a feel to it. As he passed by, it says. Uh, the story has already begun. We're coming to it uh, a little late here. And it says in verse 2, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So part of this story is about uh, guilt and judgment. Uh, maybe this man often uh, would have the thought pass through his head, what did I do to deserve this? I don't know if you've ever had that thought. I'm probably, I'm quite certain you have because I know I've uh, had it myself many times. It's kind of natural for us. And, and I wonder too if his parents might have ever thought as parents, what did we do wrong? Have you as a parent ever, ever had that thought? Jesus' answer is informative uh, for us. In verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Here's a question for us today. Can we consider our life situations, even those situations that we tend to think of as being unfortunate, can we think of our life situations as opportunities for God to work in and through us? Verse 4 says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Again, Jesus is speaking here and responding to the disciples' question. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. What a strange method Jesus employed here to heal this man. We know from all of the different, the accounts of all the different healings that Jesus did, that this was uh, an unusual th thing that he, he did. We're not sure 
you know, what, what's with the mud thing, right? Um, and we can't say for sure because the text doesn't say, but I think that we might, uh, there might be something in the fact that, um, that, that in order for this man to receive his sight, he had to go and he had to remove something. He had to, had to wash something off of his eyes. And we uh, don't tend to think of uh, sightedness as the removal of something, uh, uh, so much as the gaining of something, but there's something maybe perhaps figurative in that action that Jesus prompted here. It's also possible that there might be a reference here to a, an act of recreation. You remember that when God makes uh, made us in the beginning, that he, he made us from the, the dust of the earth and, and then he breathed life into us. Uh, but I think there's something else happening here as, as well uh, that we may go, make reference to as we, as we move through the passage. But, but I wonder how many times did this man uh, in his lifetime washed his eyes? Um, you know, he was, a, he was a grown man and he had never been able to see. And how many times had he washed his eyes and, and never produced sight to him? But this time is going to be different. And the difference if, of course, is Jesus, right? So verse eight says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where, where is he? He said, I do not know. And then it says in verse 13 that they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now we've been meeting Pharisees since we entered the New Testament on our three-year journey through uh, the Bible. Remember a few weeks back when Josh introduced us to a man named Nicodemus, and we're told that Nicodemus was a member of the Pharisees. That was in John chapter 3. And they, the Pharisees, uh, probably play a bigger role uh, interacting with Jesus as a group than any other uh, group in the gospel accounts. One of the most significant cultural historical developments from the time of the exile and the dispersion of the north and the southern kingdoms in the Old Testament that, and the return uh, under Ezra, Nehemiah, um, and Zerubbabel um, that signals the end of the Old Testament storyline. One of the biggest developments from then until now where we're at here in the days of Jesus is the development of this order referred to as the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were biblical scholars and they developed a great body of, uh, of work consisting of what they believed uh, were author authoritative explanations and interpretations and applications of the written Old Testament laws. Now, their teachings were known as the oral law or oral Torah, T-O-R-A-H, if you're going to uh, check that out. Um, now, for a long time, I didn't understand this. Um, I thought... It, the oral law or the oral Torah uh, or the traditions are sometimes referred to as the traditions in scripture, the teachings of the rabbis. I, I, I had always thought that they, uh, that they had uh, be, uh, became um, uh, accepted 
authoritative interpretations of the written Mosaic law. But that's not quite how they understood it. And uh, this, is, uh, this is insightful, uh, at least it, it certainly was for me when I started to understand it. What they actually believed and taught was that their collection of extra biblical teachings were actually part of the holy revelation from God received by Moses for the people right along with the written word. It was believed that they, it was part of, God, of what God gave Moses that he didn't write down. So when we read about the, the many traditions of the Pharisees or the scribes and the Pharisees, because they're, all, they're quite commonly mentioned together, uh, we need to understand that they believe these to be just as inspired as the written word of God that constituted the books of Moses. And so they, they perceived themselves then as the final authority on these things. I, I have a quote I want to read for you. Actually, you can read it with me because we're going to project it. It's from Alfred Edersheim's uh, book, uh, The Life and Times of uh, Jesus the Messiah. And this is what uh, Alfred Edersheim uh, writes about the scribes, the New Testament scribes. He says, everywhere he appears, referring to the scribes. Everywhere he appears as the mouthpiece and representative of the people, he pushes to the front and the crowd respectfully gives way and eagerly hangs on his utterances as those of a recognized authority. He has been solemnly ordained by the laying on of hands and is the rabbi, my great one, master, amplitudo. He puts questions. He urges objections. He expects full explanations and respectful demeanor. Indeed, his hyper-ingenuity in questioning has become a proverb. There is not a measure of his dignity, nor yet limit to his importance. He is the lawyer, the well-plastered pit filled with the water of knowledge out of which not a drop can escape. He is the divine aristocrat, among the vulgar herd of rude and profane country people who know not the Lord and are cursed. More than that, his order constitutes the ultimate authority on all questions of faith and practice. He is the exegete of the laws, the teacher of the law. Each scribe outweighed all the common people who must accordingly pay him every honor. Nay, they were honored of God himself and their praises proclaimed by the angels. Such was to be the respect paid to their sayings that they were to be absolutely believed, even if they were to declare that to be at the right hand, which was at the left, or vice versa. That's a pretty uh, great esteem, <laughs> that these men would have been held in. Um, and it was under these conditions that the Pharisees rose up. Because the, not all Pharisees were scribes, and not all scribes were Pharisees, but the scribes uh, formed the authoritative basis for the beliefs and existence of the order of the Pharisees. And Edersheim goes on to describe how these numerous laws 
which were intended to expand and explain the application of the written laws, written laws of the book of Moses, how they function. And I just a brief quote, he says, they provided for every possible and impossible case entered into every deal of private, family, and public life with an iron logic, unbending rigor, the most minute analysis pursued and dominated man turn whether he might, laying on him a yoke, which was truly unbearable. <laughs> wow. Um, a good example of the legalizing that the scribes and Pharisees did was, uh, would be their laws with regard to the Sabbath law. Of course, you are probably aware that the Old Testament written law of Moses declared that no work was to be done on, on the Sabbath. Uh, but that begs the question in the mind of the Pharisee or the scribe, what is work? And what constitutes work? So, they developed hundreds of stipulations to distinguish what was acceptable on the Sabbath and what wasn't. So, for example, to make clay was forbidden. So was applying healing remedies. And I think that may be insightful when we try to understand why Jesus healed this man the way he did because it was the Sabbath day um, I've read numerous times uh, over the years as well where these the Pharisees had a law that you couldn't spit in the mud on the Sabbath because if you spit on the ground it would be constitute till, the tilling of the soil now I haven't been able to document that uh, myself but nonetheless it was against the oral law or the traditions of the Pharisees to make clay on the Sabbath. And it was against their law to um, apply healing remedies on the Sabbath. And um, so we see here a little bit of how the minds of the Pharisees work when it came to these things. Just a, a bit of a, a side question then. Uh, was what Jesus did for this man, work. Well, Jesus called it work. If you look back in, at verse 4, he says, we got to get to work. We got to get to work here because time is running out. And so I think that this passage, one of the things this passage does is it points to us, uh, points us to the, one of the uh, consistent errors made by the scribes and the Pharisees when they uh, focus so much on the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law. Paul refers to that if you, if you uh, want to check it out, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. And uh, you could also sometime check out Mark chapter 2 where Jesus uh, is confronted there about the Sabbath and his, uh, what he did on the Sabbath day. And... Uh, uh, you know, the claims that the Pharisees, uh, you know, accused him of, of breaking uh, the Sabbath law um, and some of the things that Jesus had to say there. Because, because the, the Pharisees and the scribes focused, uh, missed the focus on the intent of the law or the intentions of the law. Uh, God's intent in giving us the Sabbath law, for example, was goodness. It's goodness to be able to rest from our labors. It's, it's, it flows out of the goodness of God. What the Pharisees and scribes uh, did to these laws actually turned them into oppressive, you know, think about it. 
you know, they, they made it so that it was unlawful to, to heal on the Sabbath. Uh, it's obviously something that God never, never intend. So that, uh, hopefully, that, maybe that'll be some help to some of you uh, critical workers, um, essential workers. You have to uh, be at work today. I don't know. But anyways, um, so did Jesus break the law? It was the Sabbath. Did he break the law? Well, did he break God's written law? No. Did he break the, the uh, oral Torah, the unwritten law that the Pharisees and the scribes uh, adhered to and promoted? Yeah, he did. He, he did for sure. Verse 14, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they again, again said to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Notice there, uh, it says some of the Pharisees, verse 16, some of the Pharisees. Uh, we have a tendency to write the Pharisees off as a whole. But uh, if you were to go back to chapter 7 and look at verse 50, you would notice there that Nicodemus is in this group. He's there while this whole thing is going down. And uh, we know that later on, Nicodemus actually ends up giving his heart to Christ. And he wasn't alone. Acts chapter 15, verse 5 tells us there were a number of Pharisees who ended up giving their hearts to, to the Lord. Even though they, uh, many of them continued to struggle with legalism because legalism does appeal to our flesh. And, and then, of course, there is Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee and who became the champion of the gospel of the grace of Jesus Christ. So there's hope for all us legalists, right? There's hope for you and me because all of us can relate to these Pharisees. So there's something important in all of this, uh, and that is that we are jumping into a conversation. Um, that's why verse 1 starts the way it does. And uh, if you go back, and I'm not going to, we're not going to put this on the screen for you, but if you just flip over to chapter 8, we're in chapter 9, right? If you flip over to chapter 8 and look at verse 12, it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And of course, Jesus repeats those words here in chapter 9, verse 5, as we just read uh, a moment ago. I am the light of the world. And that's what this passage is really all about. It's that whole uh, identity thing again, right? So this is a story of the blind man that we are considering today. Uh, but it's actually said in scripture as part of a larger dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. And that issue is the identity of Jesus as the light of the world and the authority of Jesus as the uh, creator and redeemer of the world. And I would encourage you to check out Mark chapter 2 there where Jesus talks about being the Lord of the Sabbath. And that's a, a, a cross-reference that's important here. But let's uh, get back into verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. 
But how he now does see, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age, and he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. To be put out of the synagogue, that's not just uh, to mean that they wouldn't be able to go to church anymore. Jewish religious life was interwoven with all of their social life and all of their business life. They would be cut off. And you can't blame this couple for their fear of persecution. Uh, verse 24 and 25 says, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And they're referring, of course, to Jesus. And he answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. There are a lot of occurrences throughout this passage of that phrase, I don't know. <laughs> you know, the parents, they didn't know. Uh, the disciples, when they asked Jesus the question at the front end there, you know, was this man born blind because of his sin or his parents? They, you know, they were confessing that they didn't know. Um, the, uh, and now here, this man, you know, he's saying, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And uh, sometimes, you know, w w uh, the things we don't know can be just as significant as what we do know. Because what we don't know directs us away from our pride and towards humility, honest humility. It's okay to say, I don't know, when we don't know. In fact, when we say we do know, when we don't really know, that's a real problem. And that's a problem, of course, that the Pharisees had. Because they really thought they had all the answers and had everything figured out. Um, I think back to uh, John chapter 3 when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, I don't, I don't understand. How can that even be possible? And Jesus said this, one of the things that he said, he said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. They're, those unknowns, uh, those are important. And, uh, you know, there is a supernatural or spiritual dynamic to truth. Uh, truth is not simply an intellectual or a cognitive function. We can experience the truth of, some, uh, of things sometimes without, fully, without understanding them or without fully understanding them. Um, do you know that? Do you know that to be true? That you can actually experience the truth of something without understanding it or without fully or completely understanding it? I hope that you know that's true. Uh, don't fall into the trap, and it is a trap, of seeing your own capacity to understand as the limit of what is. Because when you do that, you make yourself the authority for all that is true. Spiritual truths are received by faith. And that's not faith in ourselves. It's not faith in our understanding. Remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, do not trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Um, so it's the type of understanding that and, and the type of, of, of um, 
of, of truth that Jesus is talking about here in the, through this passage is, is something the Spirit of God does. He illuminates. He turns, turns on the lights for us. It's not, it's not that faith is anti-intellectual, uh, but it does transcend our cognitive understanding. That's why Paul refers uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to uh, the preaching of the cross as foolishness to those who do not believe. Because they don't, they don't understand because they, you know, they, 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 they think that they need to be able to understand something before they can believe it even exists, which is kind of small view. Um, that's why we don't need a, need a big IQ to be saved. Aren't you glad to hear that? That means there's hope for you and for me. We don't have to be brilliant to, to have eternal life, to know Jesus, to, under, to, to, uh, to receive his, his grace. We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to be able to figure it all out. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, some of the most brilliant minds in the world today and those in history have been people of faith. People who uh, believe in, know, and love and worship Jesus Christ as their Savior. I hope you know that. Um, this whole idea that uh, uh, faith is somehow unscientific, that is a misguided thought. Uh, Ravi Zacharias is one of those, those minds. Uh, Ravi, of course, passed away just recently, but, but what a brilliant, brilliant man, and yet a solid, solid believer in Jesus Christ. Uh, we're, uh, we miss him. You don't have to be brilliant, though, to recognize the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Verse 26, they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Ooh, you wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? <laughs> and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he has opened my eyes. <laughs> this guy is getting real smart real fast. <laughs> It's great. I love it. Uh, verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. See, there it is. You were born in utter sin. See, the, the question that, Je that the disciples asked Jesus at the beginning, the Pharisees thought they did have the answer to that question. Because their whole theology was a theology void of grace. Their whole theology was a, a, a theology that, that you get what you deserve. And that was convenient for them. Because when they looked at their own lives, with all of the position and the privilege and the prosperity that they enjoyed, they could justify their own self-righteous attitudes because they really believed they deserved those things. Just like that blind man deserved to be blind because of his sin. 
they deserved, they felt they deserved to be prosperous and cited and privileged uh, and to hold the positions that they did because they did not believe that they were sinners like him. They deserved what they, ha- what they got, they felt, and he deserved what he got, they felt. So if we're to understand the mind of the Pharisee, I think we need to see their, their blindness, not only to the spiritual realities of God and grace and who Jesus is, but also the blindness to their need for him, the blindness to their own sin. You see, they really thought they had it figured out. It was a great system because it worked for them. They were the teachers. They did not need to be taught. They couldn't be taught because they already knew it all. And they had set themselves against Christ. And the reason they set themselves against Christ was because his teaching and his authority threatened their false sense of superiority and the self-righteous convenience that they enjoyed. They were antichrists. If you go back to chapter 8 and read chapter 8, that's what chapter 8, the discourse between the Pharisees and, uh, and Christ is all about how they set themselves against him. The one who was sent to redeem them, to save them, to, to forgive their sins, they set themselves against him. They had a plan. Uh, if you look through chapter 8, they had a plan already in place to kill him. Why? Because he was messing with their system, their setup. They had a great gig going, and he was going to ruin it. And so they answered that man, verse 34, they said, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us. And then the text says, they cast him out. Verse 35 says, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a messianic title, by the way. For the Messiah, right? Um, in verse 36, he answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. That reminds me of Jesus with the woman at the well. You know, I who speak to you am he. Straight up. Right straight up, Jesus tells him, It's me. I am the Son of Man. And uh, verse 38, it says that the man then said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. See, there's that identity thing. The identity of Jesus. Recognizing Jesus for who he is and worshiping him as Savior and as Lord. Now, the next three verses are the last three verses in the chapter. And they constitute uh, a Jesus' commentary on this whole thing. So if we have ears to hear this morning, we need to hear these words from uh, the Lord Jesus. He said, uh, verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Paradoxical, for sure. Profound, yeah. We've been saying all along in this eight-week 
treatment of some of the many miracles of Jesus, how the miracles speak and how they teach and how there's a message in the miracles and how the miracles point uh, us to that which is beyond the material world. And this particular uh, miracle and this story of the blind uh, man uh, is another one of those examples of how the miracles of Jesus point us um, beyond the actual physical uh, miracles themselves. The physical ailments that Jesus healed point to a bigger problem. And the healings of Jesus point us to a bigger solution. Uh, They are parabolic. The miracles of Jesus are parabolic. They're like parables. They serve like parables. They teach us. Now, just to be clear, because I do not want to be understood on this, I am not saying that the miracles didn't physically happen that they were just made up stories to create some type of moral lesson. If the miracles didn't actually happen, then they have no power to speak to us at all. If they didn't really uh, happen and aren't really true, there's no authority to be found in them. What I am saying is that although they happened in the material world, in space and time as actual history, they also point us to a greater reality beyond the material world. Remember, if you reflect back with me where we started this eight weeks ago, Mark chapter 2, the man who was paralyzed, and Jesus says there, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk, but so that you might know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the man, rise up and walk. The leprous man a few weeks ago who returned falling at Jesus' feet and to hear the words of Jesus, your faith has made you well, sozo, heal, your faith has saved you. The man at the pool of Bethesda last week uh, uh, who Josh talked with us about, whose problems went far beyond the obvious uh, and Jesus spoke to him beyond those initial problems do you want to be healed here in this passage this man was physically blind and Jesus healed his physical blindness but notice in the story that the man seeks Jesus out well actually Jesus sought the man out afterwards and he experiences more than physical sight it's he said to Jesus who is he that I might believe in him Jesus said, I am he. And the man said, I believe. And he worshiped him. And that's when Jesus offered this important commentary. He said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. I know it sounds kind of like a riddle, but it's, that's because it's parabolic. Check out this commentary from scripture, okay? I'm reading from John chapter 3. Because the best commentary on scripture is scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light, that light is coming into the world and people love darkness rather than light because their works 
were evil. In John chapter 9, we're jumping into the story. Yes, it's the story here of the blind man. But the discourse that's been happening and the exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees was all about Jesus as the light of the world. Back in chapter 8, Jesus said this to the Pharisees. He says, if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Jesus of Nazareth, God to the rescue, light of the world. You know, it kind of seems like one of those chicken egg stories, right? Or chicken egg things. You know, which comes first, the chicken or the eggs? Is the reason that they didn't see their sin because, because they didn't see Jesus as the light of the world? Or is the reason they didn't see Jesus as the light of the world is because they didn't see their sin? I don't know exactly, but I do know this. I know that one of the greatest gifts that God will ever give you is when he shows you your neediness. One of the greatest things that we could have God do for us, and I pray this for us, is that when we see just how much we need Jesus, just how sinful and fallen and needy and frail and weak and broken we really, really are. Because when we consider Jesus' words to the Pharisees, at the end of this discourse, we have indication to believe that somehow these men were willfully ignorant. It's verse 41. I'll just read it again here. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That's how Jesus concludes this whole thing. Remember the question at the beginning. We're wrapping up here, okay? Remember the question at the beginning. Jesus asks or they asked Jesus, disciples asked Jesus, who sinned that this man was born blind? And remember Jesus' answer. He said, neither, but, and the but is important. He says, but rather that the works of God might be displayed in him. Do you need for God to do a work in your life? Are you willing to see the work <laughs> that you need for God to do in your life? Or, or are you okay? You know, are you saying, it's okay, I'm okay, I've got this. I can make this work for me. Will you close your eyes as we close in prayer this morning? Will you pray with me? Darkness is an experience that's common to all of us. Just like sin is an experience that's common to all of us. The scriptures teach us that we are all born sinful. And we need God's light and his grace. Imagining what it's like to be blind is an opportunity we all have. Because all we have to do is close our eyes. None of us can see in the dark. There was a man who was born blind who received his sight. But he's not the only one blind. Many choose to keep their eyes closed. Which are you? Father, I pray that you would show us how very much like the Pharisees we tend to be. But I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see ourselves in this in this 
one blind man who received his sight and so much more when he came to see Jesus for the Savior you are, Lord. And such a big part of that in this whole thing is recognizing our need for you, seeing our sin. Lord, we don't want to be blind to you. We don't want to be blind to our need. So we pray this morning that you would show us Show us what the real story is. And help us, Lord, to lift our eyes to you and see you as Savior and Lord of our lives and worship you as Savior and Lord. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing together. Um, but I encourage you to reach out to us this, this morning if there's something that you, uh, questions that you have or anything that you would like to to uh, connect with us on. And, and, and once again, you know, consider filling out that connection card there. And, uh, but uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. And, uh, but, but take some time right now to sing with us as we, uh, as we worship the Lord together in song. Thank you.
you